In this podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about The Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth by Douglas Harding and uh, just think about uh, a few ideas from particularly the first chapter. Now, this is a huge book. It was first published in 1952. That was the abridged version, the condensed version. And Douglas Harding had been working on it for 10 years or more in a way. And uh, when he finished the original huge version in 1950, perhaps, then he condensed it so it could be small enough to be published. And um, I first read the condensed version in the 19, early 1970s, and then the large version. I spent some time at Douglas's house and read it there, and was just blown away by this fantastic book, and I'm still amazed at how little it is known, really. It's just a major work of philosophy in the 20th century. I mean, it's just astonishing. I mean, it is beautifully written, absolutely clearly written, and has hundreds and hundreds of very informative notes down the sides of each page. It is just a work of art. Anyway... I could go on and on, and uh, I predict it will be at some point recognized as the very great work it is. Anyway, um, some people seem to find it difficult to understand, and so I thought I would just give a few reflections, my own reflections, on the on the first chapter, and just a small part of the first chapter. In the first chapter, Douglas gives an overview of the whole book, and then fills in the parts, as it were, over the rest of the book. I mean, fills in is an understatement. (laughs) Anyway, he starts the book with the question, what am I? Who am I? What am I? And uh, after giving a few thoughts, actually, in the preface to the big version about why he's asking that question, curiosity, and just a need to find out who he really was before he died, And uh, he first answers that question by saying, well, common sense says I'm a man sitting at my desk writing on a piece of paper. And then he says, surely nothing can have gone wrong so far. And then he says, but wait a minute, I am the only one who is here where I am, so only I am in a position to say what it's like to be me. So I'm going to look for myself. And he looks and he sees his arms and his legs and his torso, but no head. And, um, well, that's what Douglas was famous for, wasn't it? On having no head, the man with no head, he looked down and noticed that he disappeared above his chest somewhere into open space. And instead of having on his shoulders his head, he found he'd got the desk and the piece of paper and the room and the trees outside the window and the grey sky beyond. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about where he goes from there, but I want to just pause for a moment because I think this is just extraordinary, because he takes seriously what he finds when he looks. He doesn't start with thinking. He starts with looking at the evidence and 
it is so different from what common sense says that you'd be forgiven for dismissing it in a moment, wouldn't you? Oh, that can't be right. I'm just not in the right place to see my head because I'm looking out of it, you know. Questions, all of these questions he goes into in great depth. But I think that this is a moment, a moment in history, really, when someone stops and puts aside what everyone has been telling him about who he is, puts aside, doesn't dismiss. The view of common sense is deeply respected in this book, the view from outside, as it were. But so is the view from inside. And if you've done any of the experiments, then, you know, you point back at the place where others can see your head and you'll find nothing there except space for the world. And he says, you know, what? of course I can see my nose, but it's not attached to a head here. And in fact, in fact, I've got two, one on the left and one on the right. And there are lots of sensations here, but they don't add up to a head. And uh, I'm completely different from other people. When they close their eyes, nothing happens. When I close my eyes, the world disappears. When they turn round, they turn round and the world is still. But when I do the same, the world spins and so on. So at, at this moment, he takes seriously what he actually experiences himself to be. And then he works out a view of himself and his place in the universe that is based on this first-person experience rather than what common sense says, or rather on, uh, just on what common sense says. So, he takes seriously what he, what he finds. And uh, th he says, well, I can't see my head, instead I see the world. And, uh, in fact, he talks a little bit later about how this is being like a mirror that you receive everything here at no distance. If you've done the single eye experiment, then you can notice you're looking out of open space and the whole world is given here at no distance. There's a distance experiment as well, isn't there, where you measure between two objects and get a reading and then measure between anything and yourself and your ruler shrinks to a point. There's no distance. So I'll have something more to say about this a bit later. But here we are being invited into Douglas Harding's experience. He hasn't started by giving you a philosophical point of view or anything, an idea. He has directly invited you into looking out of the place where he is looking out of. I think it's uh, astonishing, really. What a start. Anyway, the first subsection of that first chapter, I think, is called uh, The Missing Head. Well, look around. You, you don't find your head on your shoulders. But the next section is called The Head Found. And uh, he then says that uh, having made this startling discovery that he isn't like anybody else in the universe. Everyone else has got heads, you know, <laughs> but he doesn't. Uh, instead of his head, he's got the world, like Atlas, you see, bearing the world on your shoulders. 
he then makes another discovery that he only has to look out in a mirror and there is his head. I mean, turned round, shrunken, see, and flat. And then he only has to polish any surface well enough to find his head in it or look in the back of a spoon or have a camera pointed towards his centre. Take a photograph and register his head out there. And his friend who enters the room says, yes, I can see your head out here, you see. So Douglas then describes a, what he calls the human region. There's a region around this empty centre where your head exists. And uh, it's so practical and, I mean, so Alice in Wonderland, really. I mean, it is so different from our normal view of ourselves that, as I say, you would be forgiven for thinking this is mad. But it's not mad. It's not mad at all, is it? It's observing how things are actually given and uh, taking that seriously. So there's this region around you. I think Douglas talks about it like a magic circle around you. And anyone who enters this region will find your head, will register your head there. Now, if they approach towards you, towards your empty center, they report that your head grows. Now, you've got to imagine this. Here you are sitting, looking out of nothing at your center. You can see your headless body, see, and, and you're looking out into whatever you're looking out into, and you don't see your head, unless you've got a mirror out there. And uh, when your friend approaches you, the nothingness here, your friend reports that your head grows until it gets so big that your friend loses it and just gets a patch of skin. Or if your friend retreats, then they'll report that your head gets smaller and includes your body, you see, and then that shrinks if they could go far enough away and replaced by the landscape. And so your friend, as Douglas is saying, has come to plot the region of your human, your human region. Entering this region, you see, uh, see your body approach, it grows and then is replaced by your head and grows and then disappears. Entering this region, you see, your, your friend uh, will, at a distance, see your body approaching you. They're reporting what you appear to be out there, you see. And uh, it, your body grows in their field of vision, in their single eye, right? until they just got your face. They're only a couple of feet away, I suppose. But they, and they're telling you, I've got your face, you see. This is what you appear to be out here. And they approach and you, your face disappears and replaced by a patch of skin. So this re, there is this magical region, region around you where, you're, where you appear human. So, there's a lot more in this, but uh, the, an, a next idea uh, that Douglas introduces, and this is just the overview, as I say, the next idea is that um, your friend uh, registers your face, let's say, out there, just as a camera would record it out there. The camera doesn't record your face 
at your centre records it f several feet away on the on the piece of photographic paper or whatever it is. So your friend records, you know, registers and can describe your face out there, but then says, but it's not here, it's at your centre. In other words, if your friend was to point at your face, they wouldn't point back at themselves, they point at your centre. And they say, Richard, your they'd say to me, Richard, your face, I see your face, it's over there where you are, on top of your shoulders. See where I can't see it. And... Um, I would do the same to my friend. I say, well, I've got your face here. I can describe it in detail in my single eye here at no distance. But I don't keep it. I, I project it back on your center. I say it's over there. And uh, these terms are what well, this is what Douglas calls reflection and projection. Reflection is like a mirror receiving an image in, in the glass there. You receive everything where you are at no distance but then you project it all out. So in other words, and this is to be observed, really. It's not a debate. It's a, an observation, a description of an observation. So you're looking at whatever you're looking at, and it's given at no distance. It's all here. And Douglas... Uh, in different places in the book, he, he describes it as, this as being all me, in a way. It's all given here, uh, in uh, consciousness here. But you, just, you uh, scatter it, he says, as if in a giant centrifuge, leaving the center, center unoccupied, so that you look down and you say, well, my hand there is two feet away or something. And then the window is ten feet away. And uh, the trees are, you know, even further. And at night, if I went out, I would locate the stars at a great distance. And this is, we live in a world where we can tell distance. Now, as I say, he goes into distance more. There's a lot more to this. But in other words, there's a paradox here that you receive everything here at no distance, yet you project it out to the furthest galaxy. And in fact, in, this, in the large version of the hierarchy, he says, you need, all the, you need both sides of this. Um, the, the reflection bit, where everything is no distance, by itself is overdoing oneness, no distance, everything is here, because this, if everything is here, the star is no more distant than your hand and has no more value in a way, it's just a dot. But then when you project everything out, we're, we're at the expense of noticing the, the reflection here, then you are overemphasizing difference and, in fact, status. I mean, the, the star is very different from your hand. It's way out there, you know, and etc. Much bigger, even though it looks smaller. You see, so you, so this projection by itself is overemphasizing those differences at the expense of their central unity. But so have both the central unity that brings everything together here at no distance, and the projection, which allow which uh, uh, respect 
at uh, the different stages of different things. So when you look at your friend, you see, their face is here, it's your face, it's given here in this nothingness, yet you project it out, and it's, uh, it is not you, it's other than you. It is there and not here. So, when you're with your friend, you receive their, their face here and project it back onto their centre. And uh, if you think about this a little bit more, I'm probably going to not say a lot more because I don't want to overdo ideas here and too much complication. But you can't see yourself, your headless body with the world on your shoulders. So how do you come to know yourself as a person? Well, it is only through getting feedback from the human region uh, through your mirror or through other people or cameras and so on. Feedback about what you appear to be out there and then taking that on board at centre because if you just leave it out there, it's not you really, is it? As the infant starts to recognise the infant in the mirror, you haven't made the leap yet of taking that image and imagining it at your centre, which is when you identify with it. So I get to know myself through my friends and enemies <laughs> and through the mirror and take that on board at centre. And my friends get to know who they are through the people around them. So uh, I am in you and you are in me, really. So then when an observer observes you from further away, you see, so this is the last idea I think I'll just talk about here in this particular podcast anyway, is that at center you're nothing and you radiate your appearances out from this nothingness like the ripples that spread out on a pond when you throw a stone in the water. So the place where the stone lands is your central nothingness. And your appearance, uh, it's a bit like being a radio station and having a re someone receive that message that you broadcast, or a television station. So you broadcast your TV picture and at six feet someone intercepts that. It's rippling out from your central nothingness and they say, oh, the message is Richard. But if they inter intercept this message at a closer range, and therefore an earlier stage of the transmission, you see, say they came right up to you, then they would find that you were cells and even closer molecules and particles. So the appearance that emanates from your central nothingness evolves as it travels and intercepted at a very close range, you're, you're just particles. So use your imagination a bit. You're looking out of the nothingness. You can see nothing where you are. But someone is observing you at very close range. And, you know, use your imagination with an electron microscope or whatever it is. And they say, well, at this range, the appearance coming out of this mysterious central nothingness, whatever it is, is atomic or subatomic. You see, and that's what you are. So they project that back on you and say, that's what you are there, you see. But they move away from you. I find this so 
beautiful, really. They move away and they observe what the message is, the TV broadcast, at a greater range. And uh, as they move away, of course, other atoms come into the picture, into the, the field of view. And they eventually form a molecule. The, the, the earlier uh, transmission of, a, of an atom, say, has evolved and grown into a molecule. Evolved. And they keep receding. Of course, their field of view remains the same, like your single eye remains the same size. And into the field of view, if you imagine this, come other molecules. Until you see that they build up into a cell. Evolution, the message, the transmission is evolving as it spreads out from this mysterious center which you are. And they say, well, at this range, whatever you are, you see, you, this mysterious nothing or whatever it is at the center of all your appearances, at this range, you appear as a cell. And they're telling you, you're a cell. They're projecting that back. They register out of that range that you are a cell and they project it back on your center. And you'd say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm a cell. Or I'm made of cells or however you want to, you know, describe it. They keep receding. Now, well, let's go to the next layer. So you, uh, in imagination, you imagine more cells come in, coming into the picture multicellular organism starting to emerge and eventually uh, they come out right out at six feet or whatever it is and there you're a person and uh, they say oh now the transmission from this central nothingness has evolved into a person now at this point, uh, I just want to point out that Douglas Harding talks about two kinds of science, horizontal science and vertical science. Horizontal science is when you look at an object and observe it at more or less the same distance, but from many different angles and times, I suppose. And uh, you go around the object. And in a way, each department of science is a kind, you know, you go look at the human being, or you look at the cell, observe the cell at different uh, angles, observe the molecule, observe the particle, uh, and that is staying at the, more or less the same distance from the central nothingness, really, and observing it at that range, going around it, above it, below it. But when you move vertically, in and out, away from the center and towards the center, you're moving through these layers and you're observing how these layers connect in a way or how one evolves out of the other. This is vertical science that brings all the sciences together in one science. And uh, Douglas notices a very interesting feature which uh, I don't suppose is original to him, but he added things together, that as you move away, and he drew diagrams of this, as you move away from, say, uh, 
you know, a cell, then you'll see other cells coming into the picture. I mean, you've got to re remember that there's just the constant field of view. And uh, one thing, when you're moving up to a cell and you lose its edges, you know, you're getting right to the heart of the cell, it's growing bigger and bigger. The cell doesn't continue to grow off the field of vision, it disappears because the field of view is constant and you take that seriously. Now, when you're moving away, other cells come into the picture just off the edge, right? Until finally they uh, will form a human being. Or if you move away from one atom, other atoms coming, come into the picture and gradually you see them coming together and forming, I don't know, a, a giant protein molecule or something. So that as you're moving away from the center vertically, new uh, levels come into being that involve the, you know, all the molecules coming together to form a cell, all the cells coming together to form a person. And as you're moving away and observing ever higher, more inclusive layers of the center, uh, this is because the parts are coming together he calls it um, socializing, I think. It's synthesis. And as you move in, uh, say you move into the person, in person the one person uh, breaks up into many cells. The one cell breaks up into many molecules. The one molecule breaks up into many atoms. So, as you move away, I'll just complete this little bit now. As you move away vertically, and in the hierarchy, in the rest of the book, or part of the rest of the book, Douglas moves right away. Observe, and, but at each level he uh, observes the kind of horizontal science and looks at the nature of each level in the light of its place within the hierarchy, which is what he calls the whole structure, really. So then you move away from the person and you'll get other members of the family coming into the field of view and other the neighborhood and the city until finally you get the whole species. And then you move away, include the other species, you see? It is vertical. Now, the observer is looking at you. You who are headless, you see. You who are looking out of no thing, the central mystery. And they are eventually, if they were looking at you from the, from Mars or the Moon or somewhere, they say, "Well, out here you appear. Your the message that is being broadcast from your mysterious central nothingness has evolved so much that now you appear as the planet. Now, are you going to take that seriously? I mean, it's true. They are." They're not looking at you as a person. They're looking at the central nothingness from there where you, as the central nothingness, appears the planet Earth. And then they project that back. Say, well, you know, point at the Earth, I point at you. You are as much, in a sense, you are as much the Earth as you are a person, as you are a cell. Now you identify mostly with being a person, and that is your base in a way, or a base that you are the Earth. And the observer retreats further to a, a neighboring star and says, well, I'm looking at you from here. I'm observing, pointing at your central nothingness, you see. 
and I'm observing what you are from here, and you're a star. So you're a star. But it projects that back. And, you know, of course, we recognize that uh, here is a star. And further away, here is the Milky Way, you see. Now, this is a grand vision. It is an incredible vision. The hierarchy. But, of course, the receding observer can never get the whole of you in the picture because they're always looking from somewhere, you know, looking at you as a, seeing a star here. They're looking from a star there. So, at the very least, they're not including that star. So they step onto another galaxy to include this star. You see, and now include you as a galaxy, include all the stars. But now you've still got to keep stepping back. And Douglas says, you know, in the end, you cannot see the whole of yourself from outside. So what to do, really? Uh, return all the way back down to the central nothingness, which where you are now, you see. Turn around and look out, and you now are space for the whole that you couldn't become by sort of retreating and looking at yourself from ever greater distances. So it brings it all the way back home to this central nothingness which is full of all. See this silence full of all the sounds. Now I've just given you a little bit of a introduction to uh, some of the ideas in the hierarchy and uh, there's a huge amount in it. And I, I suppose partly, I hope that you'll read the book. And if you've got an appetite for a book as big as world as uh, War and Peace, then read the, the original big version which is published on Amazon, you can get it. And uh, it is actually easier to read than the abridged version because it is a lot more kind of uh, less condensed. But at the beginning of um, the hierarchy, Douglas mentions Leonardo da Vinci, who described objects as uh, broadcasting their appearances, he didn't quite use that word, but he did use the image of a stone thrown in a pond sending out ripples, and that the appearance is everywhere. Douglas just adds the, the, uh, the extra bit, is it's everywhere except at the centre. Now, I want to return to where I started, which is Douglas Harding asking the question, what am I? And uh, starting with common sense, I'm a, a person, and then questioning that, and it, uh, looking for himself, and then looking at what it was like to be, what it is like to be yourself. What do you see instead of your head, you see? Where is your head? When people see your head, they, they register it out there and project it back here. The second chapter is about perception and how he understands perception. So I might, I might talk about that in another podcast. I think I've probably, you know, overloaded you enough. <laughs> but I love this book and um, it is, uh, it sounds a bit Alice in Wonderland. But, you know, it is real. Uh, uh, this idea that, you know, 
you're just be aware of yourself now and you're headless and replaced by the world and then there's a magic ring around you where you appear human but there's a magic ring around you where you appear planetary or where you appear as a you know star and anyone entering that zone will pick up your intercept your or uh, star appearance. And uh, the other thing, which is uh, part of this, is that obviously your appearance radiating, evolving out from your central nothingness, this reality, it takes time to travel. So uh, if, um, if someone is standing on the moon, you know, looking at you from the moon, you know, your, your appearance takes just over a second to get there. I think it's 1.3 seconds. So you're, you're it one, to, about that long, you see, for your appearance to travel out. You know, like you would uh, getting messages back from Mars, you know, it takes hours, doesn't it? Well, we, so we understand. Well, your appearance is radiating out. This is the thing, you see. When you recognize, when you see, you're not a thing at center, you're no thing. You've still got an appearance, you're still something, but it is out there, it, it is a transmission. So your Earth face takes a, a, about a second to... Uh, Presumably, if someone was on the sun, they couldn't make it there. But from there, eight minutes, right? And from a neighboring star, it might be a few years. It takes that long. And then that is projected back, you see. And of course, you do the same. You look at a star in the sky. Well, it might have taken two years, ten years, twenty years for that star to get from that central nothingness where it is to you and to have grown from atoms, you see, through molecules to, a, a, to maybe a planet, you know, out there, to then a star. It all coalesces. The planets come together and form a star. So that uh, it, by the time it's got to you, it's evolved from its central nothingness to a star in you. When you look at that star in the sky, it has traveled. The appearance hasn't traveled as a star. It has evolved from a central nothingness into a star, and it has taken years. So that's why we say, well, that, I'm, I'm seeing what was there five years ago. So what you do is you receive the star here in your nothingness at zero distance, so here it is now, but you project it back all that distance out there and back in time. And you say, well, that is five years ago. I'm seeing the past. From this central nothingness, which is now, I'm looking into the past. And in that sense, whenever you look out, well, as you look out from your central nothingness, you're looking into the past. So I, uh, I will give you, uh, I am... Uh, I'll stop myself now. I'll just give you an idea about time uh, that Douglas Harding talks about. And he, he looks at time in three different ways. So this is just one of them. 
called correspondence time. And uh, correspondence time is uh, if you get a letter from, well, I'm in England, if I get, get a letter from someone in Australia, it might take a week to get here. So I'm reading it now. But what I'm reading about is what happened a week ago to my friend in Australia. So it's got a sort of double date. It is a week ago and it is now. So same with the star. The star has arrived in me. And it is both five years ago and now. See, but I... yeah. So then um, I decide to write back to my friend in Australia, you see, and send the letter off. So I know what my friend will be reading in a week because it's going out from here to there, but it takes that long to get there. So when I look at a star, I'm receiving the star here. It's relativity, isn't it? I'm receiving the star here from then, now from then. And... Uh, it has taken that long to get here, but it is now as well. So it's what Douglas calls uh, double-dated or something. It's got a dual date. Just as it is here from there, it is now from then. And my star appearance, which will will arrive over at that in that star, the central nothing, it will evolve and grow across you know, several light years and take... So it will be, it will appear in that star in three years. So there's my, there's my, the future really, just as my letter will be received in a week by my friend. So I hope I'm whetting your appetite a bit uh, for these very, very exciting way of seeing the world, the universe, which is ranged around you, around your central nothingness. And you're broadcasting your appearance and it's being you know, reflected back to you at different layers. And what you are uh, depends on the range of the observer. This, uh, this book... Uh, is, is getting better known, and as I say, I hope that uh, thoughts like these and uh, perhaps some discussions, some more thoughts about the book, will whet the appetite of people and uh, encourage people to read this very, very great book. Thank you for listening. <laughs>